All right. So good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all tonight. And we're going to start in Matthew 24. <clears throat> Matthew 24, and we'll read verse 42 to the end of the chapter. And then after that, uh, we'll pick up into chapter 25. And really, uh, 25 is a continuation of what he's talked about uh, in 24, right? And all of this uh, began after leaving the temple and his disciples bringing to his attention the buildings and the stones and how beautiful and wonderful they were, which then led Jesus to uh, talk about the destruction of Jerusalem and then his second coming, right? His second coming. And that's where we ended last week at 41, which uh, 29 to 41 I took to be referring to the second coming of Christ. And then now in verse 42 and then into chapter 25, what are the implications of the second coming of Christ for us in our daily living and how we ought to behave and conduct ourselves in this present life. So that's what he's dealing with here and the need to be ready for those events, for that event to happen. So let's pick up Matthew 24, verse 42. It says, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave, whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we do pray that you would, Lord, keep us always in anticipation of the second coming of Christ. Lord, knowing uh, that we have the need to be on alert because we do not know what day that you are coming. But we do know for certain that you will return and that when you do, you will judge, Lord, all men. And so, Father, we pray that we would keep these at the forefront of our mind the second coming of Christ, Lord, the imminent day of judgment, and Lord, the need for us to be ready and prepared by being reconciled to you through the death of Christ and being found faithful to you upon your return. So Lord, teach us tonight, and Lord, give us this diligence, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Again, as I mentioned, this passage here before us is a application or the implication of the second coming of Christ. The need for us to be ready because when Christ returns, it is going to be sudden, right? It will be sudden and we do not know the day or the hour, right? This is what Jesus said uh, in the passage we dealt with last week. In verse 36, that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. No one knows the day or the hour, meaning the exact time, the exact day, and the exact hour of that day when Christ returns. We do know that it will be on a day, right? It will be a day like any other day that will start. And then all of a sudden, suddenly, Christ will appear and He will return. And then it will come upon the entire world. And Jesus used the illustration or the comparative between the days of Noah. 
that in the days of Noah, people were going about life just like they always had, eating, drinking, marrying, giving, and marriage. And then Noah entered into the ark, and then the flood came upon them and swept all of them away. And he's saying the coming of the Son of Man, His coming, will be similar to this. Though it is true that Jesus has given to us indications, signs, by which we know of His second coming. And He has told us that there is certainly a second coming. So we're not going to be caught off guard as believers who are ready and waiting for the second coming of Christ. But in terms of the specificity, the exact day and hour, no one knows. And this is according to the wisdom of God. Right? The second coming, the surety of that is given to us by Christ, but the exact day or hour we do not know. And so what is the conclusion that we should draw? How are we then going to be ready for the second coming of Christ? We'll live every day as if it is the day of the second coming of Christ. Always be prepared, always be ready for the Lord's coming. And if we are living a faithful life, then it doesn't matter if He returns tomorrow, if it's 10 years, or if it's 50 years from now. Because if we're being faithful to the Lord, no matter when He comes, He will find us as a faithful, wise slave. And this is what He is teaching His disciples here. So let's pick up in verse 42. He says, Therefore be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Here, the implication is be on alert, be prepared, be watchful. Consider these things and be ready for the second coming of Christ. Always be alerted. Always be prepared for the second coming of Christ. He says, because you don't know the day of your Lord's coming. Right? We're not talking about the day of our best friend's coming. We're not talking about the day of our homie or our peer or someone who's just like us. Who is the one that's coming back? It is our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one coming, and what has God entrusted to Jesus Christ at His second coming? All judgment has been given to the Son. And when the Lord comes again, when He comes this second time, He's coming to judge the world in righteousness. And He's our Lord. He's our Lord. And if He is our Lord, then we are His slaves. And what should a slave do toward his Lord? How should he live in light of his Lord? He should do his will. Do those things that are pleasing to his Lord and Master. So we need to be alert and ready for these things. He's telling us to take care, to be on guard, watch over your souls, and do not let this attitude of self-indulgence, of negligence, a carefree, cavalier attitude toward the second coming of Christ. And this will be the temptation to think, well, he's not going to come back tomorrow or next week or even next year. I've got many more years on this earth, so I can have a good time. I can dabble in the things of this world. I can have fun with sin, and then I can always deal with those things later before my death or before the second coming of Christ. But we don't know if we have that time. So we just need to be ready and prepared at all times, at all times for the second coming of Christ. We know he is coming, but we do not know the exact hour, so the Solution is always be ready, always be prepared, be on guard and be alert for these things. This is similar to what we've seen in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter two. This is what the apostle here is urging the Christians to the need to watchfulness, to consider, to pay attention right to the things that he's teaching, to not neglect them but rather to give serious consideration to these truths 
and to live their life in light of these things. Hebrews 2 verse 1, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. And then chapter 3 verse 12 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And then chapter 4 verse 1, Therefore let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. So there He's urging them to fear, to take care, to consider these things, to be on guard, which is the same as our Lord and Savior doing here. Verses 43 and 44, But be sure of this, that at the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. Here we know that He is coming. This is what He is saying here. And if you knew the exact moment of His coming, then of course you would be ready for that time. But it's unknown. It's unknown, and therefore you must be on guard and on alert. And here, if the head of the house, he uses this illustration, if the head of the house knew at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Right? Isn't this true? If we knew thieves were coming to our house, and we knew that they were coming in the middle of the night, and we knew that they said they were coming at 2 o'clock in the morning, right? or like in the famous movie Home Alone, they announced at 9 o'clock they're coming back. And so he knew. He knew that they were coming, and he was ready for them when they came to his house, and everything was prepared to capture those thieves. Well, in the same way, this is how we would be. If we knew the thief was coming in the middle of the night, we would be ready for his coming. Well, we know that Christ is coming, don't we? We don't know the exact time that he's coming, but we should be ready and we should be alert for those things, right? The unknowability of his exact coming means that we ought to be ready and waiting all the time. The same as a guard, a guard who is over a city, who is there stationed at the watchtower. If there is an army that has gathered around the city, and you know that that army wants to penetrate the city, they want to come in, and they want to destroy the city, and your job is to sit on that watchtower and watch, and if you see the enemy coming, right, to announce it and, and alert everyone so that they're not caught off guard. Well, if you're there, you don't know the exact moment that the enemy is going to attack. You don't even know if it'll be tonight or tomorrow night or the next night, but you know it's coming. You know that it's imminent, and surely they are going to at some time try to attack and come into the city. Then what do you need to do as a good guard, as a faithful guard? You need to stay awake. You need to be sober-minded. You need to be alert. You need to be always watching and ready so that at the first sign that this enemy is trying to come into the city, you can alert everyone, sound the alarm, and then they can thwart the coming danger. Well, the same with the coming of Christ. We don't know. Now, of course, in the coming of Christ, he's not a thief, right? And he's not uh, an enemy that's trying to destroy us. He is our Lord and our Master, and when He comes, He's coming to give us our salvation, right? But for the world, He's coming to judge them. And if we don't want to be caught up in that judgment, then we need to be ready and prepared for the coming of our Lord and Savior. 
verse 45. How to be faithful. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Here, how to be prepared for the second coming of Christ. Well, who is a faithful, sensible slave? Who is the faithful slave? What does the faithful slave look like? Well, he is the one who the master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. Right? When the master of the household goes on a journey, he leaves. And this is the imagery that Christ is using here. He is the master of the house, but the master of the house has gone on a long journey. And he will not return for many days. And this is what has happened right now. Christ was here. Now he has gone on a long journey. He has ascended to the right hand of God. And he will not return for many days. And while he is gone, while he's not with us, visibly, physically, presently with us. So he is with us spiritually and invisibly by his Holy Spirit. He's not with us visibly and physically. Visibly and physically, where is Christ right now? He's at the right hand of God the Father. And He has gone away and He has left us our duties, our marching orders. And the faithful, sensible, the faithful, wise slave is the one that the Master leaves over His household to give them their food at the proper time. He has set this slave apart and said, your job, your duty, your responsibility is to provide for the household and to set the food before them at the proper time. Not to indulge, not to be lazy, right? not to be slack on your responsibilities, but to be diligent, to be faithful, and to do what I have told you to do. This is what the faithful, wise slave does. Now, here, he calls us faithful, wise slaves. Slaves, right? And this metaphor, imagery of slavery is used to rightly illustrate or show the relationship that we have to Christ. Now, this isn't the only imagery used in order to depict the relationship we have with Christ. There are other metaphors used in the Bible as well, such as the bride of Christ. He is our husband and we are his bride. Also, in Hebrews chapter 2, we remember that we were called his children. So in that sense, he is our father and we are his children or his sons. Jesus is also called our elder brother. So in that sense, he is our brother and we are the younger brother. But also here, he is called our master and we are his slaves. And all of these are true in one relationship or another. And the Bible uses these various ways to describe the relationship that we have with Christ. I say that because there are some times where people will say, well, we're not slaves of Christ. We're sons of God or we're brothers of Christ because a slave, you know, has this low position. And certainly in one regard, it is true that we are sons and not slaves. In terms of condemnation, in terms of our endurance in the household, in terms of inheritance, we are sons and not slaves because slaves don't receive an inheritance. But in terms of our responsibilities, we are slaves and he is our master. He tells us what to do. We don't tell him what to do. And we are not peers in that way, but he is our Lord and our master. And we are his servants. We are his slaves. And it is our responsibility to do the will of our master, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6. Romans 6.
in verses 17 to 18, Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that you who were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And then verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God... You derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there he speaks of us being slaves to righteousness and being enslaved to God. Enslaved to God in the sense that we want to do His will. We want to obey Him. We don't want to be enslaved to sin anymore. And now we want to be enslaved to God so that we are doing His will. And this is how... Christ is describing us. We are His slaves. Also here, He has put them in charge of His household to give them the food at the proper time. Though I do believe that this has application to all Christians because there is a sense where we are to teach and feed one another. But it does have extra application to the apostles, and to those who are teachers of the Word of God, to pastors and teachers, and then also to heads of households. Because they are the ones who have been put over the household of God, and their responsibility is to give the people their food at the proper time. And what is the household of God but the church, right? The household of faith. And what is it to give them their food at the proper time than to feed them the very Word of God? And he is talking to his apostles here. And he's reminding them, because they are teachers of the Bible, that they are entrusted with this responsibility of being over the household of God and giving the people of that household their food at the proper time. Right? This is what they ought to do. And indeed, this should be true of all teachers of the Bible, all heads of house. And then it ought to also be true of us individually toward one another. Because we are called, according to Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Well, how are we going to encourage each other without giving people the word of God, right? The words of life. We need to give people the food necessary to help them in their time of need. Hebrews 3, 1 to 6, we remember here that he refers to the church as the household of God. Hebrews 3, verses 1 to 6. says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope firm until the end. There again, he's making this contrast between Moses and Christ. Moses being a servant, a faithful servant in the house of God, Christ being the son over the household of God. 
He is the cornerstone upon which the household of faith is built. And he says, we are his house. And the we is referring to who? To the believers, right? To the Christians, the Christian church. This is the household of Christ. And Christ has put these slaves over his household to give them their food at the proper time. There are certain slaves that are put over the other slaves, right? Just as also the shepherd and the sheep. There are some sheep of the flock who are given the responsibility by Christ to also be a shepherd over the flock of Christ. So in one regard, they are a sheep. In another regard, they are a shepherd. In this regard, they are a slave of Christ, but they're also a steward, a manager over the household of faith. And how are they to execute this duty and responsibility? Faithfully with wisdom and sensibility. And that is seen by giving them their food at the proper time. Feeding the flock, right? Tending to the flock. Isn't this what Jesus at the end of the Gospel of John told Peter? Right? Tend my sheep, tend my flock, feed my lambs. This is what he's telling him he needs to do. Well, how does the minister feed the flock? How does he feed the lambs? Opening up the words of God, the very words of life and teaching the people those things necessary for life and godliness. And the Bible is referred to as food for the souls of men. 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter 2 1 Peter 2, verses 1 to 3 says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. There he calls the word the pure milk of the word. The pure milk of the word. And in one sense, we are in this life, babes in the faith. Even the most mature is in a sense a babe in consideration to what he will be in the life to come. This is what the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 13, that now we are like children, but then we will be like adults. And what does a baby feed upon? The pure milk. Milk is what gives him his sustenance and his strength. And so also we are to feed the household the milk of the word, right? The milk of the word. Also, Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 5 uses this as well, but talks also about meat, meat and milk. <clears throat> Hebrews 5.11, concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So there, there is milk and there is the solid food. And we need to grow into maturity so that we're able to have this solid food. And here I think he's dealing with those foundational principles, foundational truths that are necessary for our salvation. 
and then we build upon those with other doctrines, other commandments, other teachings, fuller and greater understandings of these things as we grow. And we don't need to go backwards and have to reestablish people in these elementary principles of the Christian faith. Not that we don't talk about those things. Of course, we talk about them for the entirety of our life. But we ought to be settled and solid on those things so that we have new, greater understandings of them, greater faith in them as we go on in our Christian life. Well, how is this going to be done? Where does the milk and the solid food come from? Well, it only comes from the Word of God. That's why Jesus told the people in John chapter 6, do not labor for the food that perishes. Right. right, the food that perishes. But they should be laboring for the words of life, for His words, for the very Word of God. So the faithful, sensible slave is the one who gives food to the household at the proper time. And in some regard, that applies to all of us, to all of us, whether that be the pastor, whether that be the head of the house, who is the primary instructor of his household, the mother to the children, and then even to one another as we encourage each other in the faith. And 46 says, blessed is that servant. Blessed is that servant whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. If the master comes and finds this slave diligently giving himself to this task, feeding the flock, the father rightly instructing his household in the faith, the mother rightly instructing the children in the faith, doing these types of things, living a godly and a righteous life, this is what the, the master finds when he returns. He says that slave is going to be blessed. He will be blessed and he will be put in charge of all of his possessions. He will give to him greater privileges and greater responsibilities in the life to come. Right? This is the correlation that we'll see throughout this chapter is between this life and the life to come. Right? This life is like a talent that a person receives. But in the life to come, it's like a city. Because here it is temporary, right? Our responsibilities and, pri and privileges only last as long as our lifetime. But in the life to come, we will receive eternal blessings. Why would God give us eternal privileges and responsibilities if we're not even faithful in this life? Right. Well, He's not going to do that. But if we are faithful in this life, if we do prove ourselves to be faithful slaves of Christ, then in the life to come, He'll put us over all of His possessions. He'll give us an even greater inheritance. Why will He give us the kingdom of God if we're not even faithful to teach our own children the things of God? Why will He let me have any position in the life to come if I'm not even faithful to instruct the flock who is under my care in this life? Well, of course He's not going to do that. But if He finds me faithful in this life, then He will reward me in the life to come. And He will do that for all of us as well. That is the blessing. You're faithful with the little, which is this life. You will be faithful with much in the life to come. And there will be great honors and blessings that that master will bestow upon that slave. Just like it was with Abraham's servant, Abraham's slave, who had proven himself faithful over the years, so much so that if Abraham died, who was going to be the inheritor of his entire household? It was going to be his slave. But then when he had a son and he needed a wife for that son, who did he entrust that task to? 
the faithful servant. But did he just do that willy-nilly? Was it the first time that he met him? He just met him and, and entrusted him with this grave responsibility to go and find a wife for his son? No. Only after years of proving himself faithful would he entrust this man with such a task to represent him and to do something that was so necessary for the benefit of his son and for the benefit of the coming of Christ. Right? Because he proved himself faithful in the little things over the course of his life, then he was entrusted with this greatest of tasks there at the end of his life, at the end of Abraham's life, and he proved himself faithful. That's the same way it will be for us. This life is a testing ground. It is a test for us to prove our faithfulness to Christ. And then what we will have in the life to come will be based upon our faithfulness in this life. Right, our faithfulness here. So if he finds us as sensible, wise servants, slaves, we will be blessed. That's a great incentive, right, for us to be faithful to Christ. Don't we want the blessing of God? Do, wouldn't it be great to be in charge of all of his possessions? That would be a very great honor indeed. Well, then what do we need to do? Be a faithful, wise slave. Then verse 48. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here again we see this contrast that is brought forward. There is the blessing and the honor for the faithful wise slave. And that is an incentive to us to be faithful and wise. But not only do we need that, we also need the warning and the threats that will be true for those who are evil slaves. And this is given to us so that we say, I don't want to be like that. I, I see what's going to happen to that evil slave. I don't want that to happen to me, so I better not be like him. Isn't this what we've been studying in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4? The wilderness generation brought forward as an example of unbelief. And he's bringing them forward in the punishment and the threats of God against them as an example to us so that we don't follow in the same sort of disobedience as they did. This is what Christ is doing here. He's presenting both the faithful wise slave, what he looks like in this life, and then what he will receive in terms of blessing and honor in the life to come in contrast to the evil slave, what he does in this life, and then what will be true of him in the life to come the shame and contempt that will be his reward because of his faithlessness to Christ. All for our benefit, to motivate us to live a godly life, to do the will of our Master and of our Father who is in heaven. Here it is the evil slave that says in his heart. Notice that. One, he is an evil slave. This is what is true of him by his nature. Right? He's not a good slave who just went off the rails. He's not uh, one who was a good slave and then converted back to an evil slave. He is an evil slave, and how long has he been an evil slave? Oh. All of his life, the entirety of it. But he also is called a slave. We're not dealing with pagans. We're not dealing with those who are outside the household of faith. In some regard, he does have some standing or position within the household. And there are many people who claim to be Christians, who are members of churches, who claim to follow Christ, who would say that Christ is their Lord, but this is what is true of them. They are an evil slave. 
Christ isn't really their Lord and they're not really his slaves, but they are rather slaves of sin. So he is indeed truly an evil slave. Though he may have a standing among the other slaves, what is true of him in his heart is that he's evil. Also notice, where does he say this? He says it in his heart. In his heart. This is what is true of him and what he really believes and thinks concerning Christ in the second coming. And what he says in his heart is, My master is not coming for a long time. Now that is in direct contradiction to what our Lord Jesus Christ just taught. Who says, to be alert, you don't know when he's coming. He's going to come suddenly. So you need to be prepared and be ready. But he's convinced himself in his heart that my master is not coming for a long time. For many, many years. We have plenty of time to have a good time, to live it up, to commit sin, to have fun in the world. And then we can get everything in order in the household just before the master comes back. And he'll think we've been working hard this whole time. So we can have the best of both worlds. And this is what most people want. They want to live. Let's see, what was it said? They want to live like a devil and die like a saint. They want to live life like the devil. And then they want to die and be assured and guaranteed of their place in the kingdom of heaven. But does it work like that? No. And this is the basis of all false religion and false Christianity. You can live in sin, die, and go to heaven anyway, right? It's all going to work out in the end. And that's what the evil slave wants to be true. He wants to live in his sin, indulge his flesh in this life, but also be guaranteed of the approval of his master when he returns. And he convinces himself that he's got time to do this because his master will be gone for a very long time. He won't be back tomorrow or the next day or even the next week. It'll be many, many months down the road. So we can indulge in the flesh for a little bit and then we'll deal with those things later right before our master returns. Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29 this is not a new phenomenon, but rather is an ancient deception in the hearts of men. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 14 says, Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God, and with those who are not here with us today. For you know how we lived in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you have seen their abominations, and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold, which they had with them. So that there will not be among you a man or a woman, or family or tribe, whose heart turns away from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations. That there will not be among you a root, bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. It shall be that when he hears the words of this curse, that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against that man, and every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Then the Lord will single him out for adversity." from all the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses of the covenant, which are written in the book of this law. 
So there, this root that bears poisonous fruit and wormwood is the person who hears the words of the curses of this book. When God is pronouncing threats and punishments for disobedience, He hears those things, and yet He says to Himself in His heart that I will have peace even though I'm doing all the things that God is pronouncing judgments against. It's going to go well with me even though these things are true. Isn't that the same as this evil slave? It's going to go well with me even if the master returns. It's going to go well with me. We're all going to make it. We have nothing to worry about. And so he indulges in sin. He indulges in the flesh because he does not have the fear of the Lord. He does not fear the day of judgment, the coming. And he's taking a calculated risk, right? That the master isn't going to come back. But even if the master does, he has to have some suspicion or some thought that, well, even if he does return, he's, it's not going to be that bad. It's not going to be as bad as he's made it out to be. We'll all be okay. And this is how many people live. They live under this kind of delusion. What does he do? Because he's not afraid. He has no fear of the second coming of his master. He begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. Here, the faithful wise slave gives them their food at the proper time. He cares for the flock. He cares for the household. He loves them. Right? And isn't this one of the chief signs that we belong to Christ? That we love the brethren? We love the flock. We love the church. We love the very body of Christ. And here they are feeding and caring for one another, the faithful wise slaves. Well, he's not caring for the body. What's he doing? He's abusing the body. He's destroying them. He's beating up his fellow slaves and then eating and drinking with drunkards. So instead of caring for the household, he begins to mistreat them and do all sorts of horrible things to them. And by doing so, he proves he has no love for the master. How can we love God whom we've not seen if we don't love our brother who we do see? How can we love God in Christ if we don't love the body of Christ? It's impossible. How can we love the husband without loving the bride, the father without loving the children? Right? This is impossible. It's a complete, utter contradiction. How can you love the master of the house while you're beating his slaves and opposing his will and doing things that are harmful for the good of his household? Right? It is impossible for one to do so. And yet this is common as well. Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34. This is what the prophet here says about the shepherds of his own generation. Ezekiel 34, verses 1 to 10. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the loss, lost, but with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. 
My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search for them and seek them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey. My flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves any more, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. Here, it's the same thing, just using a different illustration. Instead of the household with a slave beating them, it's the shepherd who is, instead of caring for the flock, of his shepherd, right? These are under shepherds who have been given this charge by the chief shepherd, by the good shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet instead of feeding and caring for his flock, what are they doing? Abusing them, exploiting them, using them for their own benefit, dominating them in this severe way, what severity they're dominating them. They're doing all these horrible things to them and the Lord sees it and then he's going to do something about it. Yep. He is going to hold them accountable for what they have done to the sheep. Well, that's the same as here. They're beating the fellow slaves and eating and drinking with drunkards, which is living in immorality. So they're abusing the brothers in Christ and they're living an immoral life, eating and drinking with drunkards. And how can they be faithful and do the will of their master if they're eating and drinking with drunkards? Right. Right? You can't go out and work all day in the field and build up the household of the master if you're constantly eating and drinking with drunkards. Well, then, verse 50, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour which he does not know. He's going to come one day. And when he comes, that slave, he's not going to be ready because he's always going to think he's got more time. He's got more time. He won't be back. As he indulges himself in this lifestyle of abuse, in this lifestyle of immorality and drunkenness, he gets into a deeper and deeper delusion. And he convinces himself that his master will not come back and everything's going to be fine. But then all of a sudden, the master returns and he finds him abusing his slaves. He finds him passed out and drunk, eating and drinking with drunkards and gluttons. He sees him doing that a day that he does not expect, an hour that he does not know. And he catches him doing these kinds of things. And this is like we read in 24, 37 to 39. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is what it's like for this evil slave. Then what will the master do to him? He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is that severe punishment? Yes. Cutting someone to pieces, that does not sound pleasant, and putting him in a place with hypocrites where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is hell. Right. That evil slave will be assigned to hell, and he will have eternal torment in hell, never ending, never ceasing. This is what 
he deserves and this is what he will receive because of who he is, right? It's not that the faithful slave earns his salvation because of his faithfulness. And it's not that the evil slave earns hell because of all of the things that he's doing, but rather these are manifestations of what they truly are, right? The wise slave is redeemed by Christ, and it is proven and manifested in his life of faithfulness. The evil slave was never redeemed by Christ, and it is proven and manifested through his life of evil, and then he does receive the just punishment for all of his evil deeds that he has performed. This is who he is, and then it manifests itself in that way, and he will receive the reward of all of those who are wicked and unbelieving, which is eternal fire. Eternal fire there for all time. Matthew 8, chapter 12. Matthew 8, verse 12. We'll start in verse 11. It says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here, outer darkness in contrast to the kingdom of heaven. Right? Kingdom of heaven for the one, outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth for the other. Then also Revelation 21 21 verse 8 it says, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth is the lake of fire, which is the second death. This is the punishment that they will receive for being evil, wicked slaves. Okay, let's start chapter 25. <clears throat> chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flask along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us, and you too go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away, to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I don't know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. So here, this parable, and then the next parable, the parable of the talents, are both going to be used to illustrate this truth, right, of those who are prepared and those who are not prepared. A faithful, wise, sensible slave versus an evil, wicked slave who does not do what is right. He's going to further define these things and give more proofs and more examples of what this looks like. And then he will talk about the day of judgment. The day of judgment and the separation 
of the righteous from the wicked, the sheep from the goats. This is what Christ will do when he sits on his glorious thrones. He will gather all the nations and he will separate them one from another. The sheep to his right, the goats on his left, and then how it is that this will come about on that great day of judgment. But we'll save the exposition of that for next week.